The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I've been talking about the, um, the foundational teachings of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths, for the last several months, kind of working my way slowly through the teachings that are associated with the Four Noble Truths. Actually, the, the, at one point the Buddha said that all of his teachings could be found or subsumed by the Four Noble Truths. And so I've kind of been exploring the various teachings that are connected with the, the truths. And um, today I'm on the Third Noble Truth. Um, so the First Noble Truth, I'll just review them so that you can have a context here. Um, the first noble truth is the truth of suffering, that um, there is suffering. This, this truth doesn't mean that everything is suffering. Sometimes I think Buddhism gets a bad reputation because it's, it's like, well, who would want to study with a, a teaching that's always focused on suffering? And uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that everything is uh, all experience is suffering, but that there, there is this process that we create that um, happens to us a lot, actually, that we, we want things basically to be other than they are. This kind of could come down to be well, the almost central definition of of suffering is the wanting things to be other than they are. Whether we want to hold on to something that's inevitably impermanent or we want to have something that we don't have, this is a large measure of the reason why we struggle in our lives because we want things to be other than they are. So this, um, this suffering that's referred to in the first noble truth is... Um, it's not the you know, so there's you know there's there's physical stuff that happens to us there's physical unpleasant situations you know you cut yourself with a knife there's pain in your in your body so there's this there's that aspect of unpleasant experience that is not what is meant by this first noble truth this first noble truth really refers to the reactivity to our experience the the fact that we again we we don't like things we want them to be other than they are or we do like things and we want them to stay kind of forever or we want to somehow control our environment such that we will have a continual stream of what we want instead of something else and this um you know, we, we actually believe that this is the way to happiness, this, this kind of trying to find our way to create our experience such that it's what we will want it to be all the time. And having that view, having that kind of belief that that is what happiness is, we really suffer when things aren't the way we want them to be. And this is kind of the, the key piece of what suffering is, is this uh, reaction to our experience. And so um, that's the first noble truth, that this suffering exists. And it's not the suffering of physical experience, it's the suffering of our mental reactivity. And then the second noble truth is the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth um, that this suffering that happens to us isn't random, actually. I think that's an important piece of this second noble truth, that it, it states that there's a cause there's a reason why this reactivity happens. It's, it's not random in our lives. We um, actually create it. It's created in our own experience out of processes that are at play in our own minds. And the main process that the Buddha points to is um, what's called tanha in the Pali, or craving is how it's usually translated. Sometimes translated as wanting, but, but craving is a good translation. Uh, the term tanha itself literally means thirst, which kind of gives you a sense of the biological urging um, that is prompting this 
craving. It's like when you're thirsty, it's this, there's, a, there's a strong need to change that situation. And so this is the kind of the ground out of which the suffering grows. That, not to say that you shouldn't drink water if you're thirsty, <laughs> but the, um, the craving things to be other than they are. In the moment, things are as they are. And we, we, it's hard for us to accept sometimes things as they are. And we have this craving as if it is a biological need to change what is. So this craving is the, the kind of the, the source out of which that suffering comes. A craving that... I need to change this. I need to fix this. I, this is not acceptable. That is the, the kind of root of our uh, reactivity. And the suffering arises because we have this view or this sense that this is not acceptable. So there's that uh, suffering and the cause of suffering. The, um, the third noble truth is the truth that it's possible to let go of the cause of suffering and be completely free of this reactivity. So the suffering that this is referring to, this, this uh, first noble truth refers to, is pretty broad. It's not what we would necessarily um, think of when we think of the word suffering. Often we think of the kind of catastrophe uh, scenario. Um, hurricanes and tsunamis and cancer and death and great loss. But the suffering that the First Noble Truth refers to, it refers to all of that and it refers to much subtler kinds of reactivity such as even simple irritation or frustration or um, annoyance, any kind of mental agitation where the mind is not at peace is a kind of suffering. And so the suffering can be pretty subtle. And so the, uh, the understanding in this third noble truth is that it is actually possible to be free of all forms of that suffering, from the subtlest to the uh, the greatest. Now, the, 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 this teaching on the third noble truth doesn't mean that we will be free from being involved in hurricanes or tsunamis or having cancer. It means that we would be free from any mental pain or grief surrounding those events. So it's, uh, it's, it's a mental shift that this third noble truth points to. Not that, you know, you know, it's not a kind of a new age thing that, you know, if you uh, come to this place, then everything will be pleasant and peaceful and, or your mind will be peaceful, but it's not that all of your experience will then be pleasant. That's not what this third noble truth is about. It's about a peacefulness of mind that the mind can be at ease with whatever is happening, even if, you know, you meet something like a deep injustice in the world and there's a motivation to change that. It's not that we would meet that and say, oh, I'm at peace with that, so nothing needs to happen. What, what, we, what happens, I think, as we let go of these causes of suffering, the craving, the wanting things to be other than they are, this, this need, it's, it's, it's that need, that urge that this is not okay. So there's the, the, the open heart with that letting go of that grasping neediness that things have to be different. The heart kind of relaxes and opens and is at peace with things as they are. But being at peace with things as they are doesn't mean that you don't act. That that 
very peacefulness, that very open-heartedness actually connects us very deeply with the experience of the world and opens our heart to the suffering of others, which would lead us then to want to respond to that, not out of a, a sense that this is uh, bad or this is, you know... It, it's the, the movement of the heart it becomes to alleviate suffering as opposed to react against something that's wrong or bad. So that it's a kind of, it's a different approach in a way. Our minds turn to respond to suffering and also to respond to joy with a balance of mind. So the mind becomes very balanced, able to accept things as they are, but yet not say, well, then nothing needs to change. That we, we can take action out of this open heart. And I've often said that, um, you know, let that contraction or openness be your guide about making decisions. That from this, um, as we travel this path and explore how to meet the, uh, the suffering of the world, we'll see that we respond with contraction. We do. So not to deny that. But to see too if there can be a connection with the kind of open heart that is responsive rather than tight and reactive. And to see if you can connect with that part of yourself in acting. So that we don't... um, as we begin to explore this, we start to see that when we act out of that craving, you know, it creates this kind of cycle for us. We, we um, uh, end up with, you know, having this belief that if I get what I want, then I'll be happy. You know, we have that kind of view. And if we act out of that belief, we end up noticing that, of course, that when we get what we want, there is some measure of happiness there. There's some, there's some happiness there that when we get what we want, we feel that, that happiness. And that happiness is pretty brief, actually. You know, it lasts for some period of time. You, you watch it yourself. See, how long does the happiness of having what you want actually last? And then when it passes, the last time that we felt pretty good was when we got what we want. And so having that notion, we then go looking for something else to want so that we can then have it and feel good again. And so it kind of creates a cycle here of, you know getting what we want, having a little bit of happiness, and then when that happiness diminishes, there's a kind of a feeling of, well, you know, things aren't as good as they could be. What else can happen so that I can feel that, that way again? And so if we act on this cycle, we start to see that, or we start to recognize that we are cultivating this wanting, actually. Look at it yourself and and see what happens for you. So the wanting um, kind of becomes, it's like this wanting cycle that we're on. We get what we want. We feel the the happiness of that. That happiness ends. So there's, there's something. It's like, what else can I want? So the proposal of this third noble truth is that It's not really, actually, the having that is the deepest place of happiness, the having what we want. There is a happiness there, and there's an acknowledgement that there's a happiness there. 
But it is actually the letting go of the wanting that brings the deepest kind of happiness. And, you know, if you actually look at this in your experience, you know, I've seen in my own experience watching wanting, you know, observing a, a pattern of wanting on one retreat, doing walking meditation, this was pretty clear to me. I was, I, I was doing walking and I noticed I really wanted to look at the people who were around me. This was a three-month retreat and we were instructed to, you know, keep your, keep your senses kind of guarded, keep your attention in, contained. And so I was following that instruction. You know, I was, like I was walking around with blinders on. I'm not going to look at anybody. And, uh, but I really wanted to look, but I was like, nope, not going to look. Keep those blinders on. And uh, at some point I realized, I, you know, that, that what was really happening there, there was wanting. Finally, I realized that there was actually wanting going on, you know. I had been overriding the wanting by forcing myself to follow the instructions. And so I decided, well, okay, so wanting is happening. Why don't I watch the wanting? So I didn't look at people here. I didn't follow through on that wanting. But I, um, I allowed myself to notice how the whole thing happened. And what I began to see was that I'd be doing walking meditation you know, I was often walking outside and so I was kind of in a place where there weren't too many people. I probably had put myself in that situation so that I wouldn't have to feel the aversion <laughs> of not being able to look at them. But so I was doing the walking meditation outside and I would notice that if somebody came up, you know, they came up like behind me, poo, they came up and they popped into my peripheral vision, oh, that wanting would appear instantly. It was just right there. And it felt like this pull, you know, oh, it's just this, i got to look, I want to look, I want to look. And I wouldn't look. And I watched the wanting, I felt the feeling. So this was a, this was a different approach. Rather than forcing myself to stay without noticing, or without noticing the person, rather than holding my attention down, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look. Instead, I was noticing the wanting. So it wasn't so forceful. It was, it was more, there was kind of a curiosity, an interest in the wanting itself. And I noticed that the wanting got pretty strong as the person came more and more able to be, all it would take would be a little shift of my eyes to go look, you know, so it got, it got pretty strong. And then the person, you know, I could see all of this kind of out of my peripheral vision, not able to know who the person was, but just kind of see that there was somebody in my field of vision. Then I, like the person, one, one day I really clearly noticed this. The person came in, walked in front of me, walked up the stairs, and went into the building. And as soon as that person disappeared into the building, the wanting vanished. And in that moment of the wanting vanishing, I felt like I had been released from a vice grip that that wanting was like being in chains to uh, follow through on that wanting. It was incredible. It really felt like a biological kind of urge. But I had seen it just vanish like that. And in that being released from that vice script, I really clearly saw how much of the satisfaction of getting what we want comes from the fact that when we get what we want, the wanting goes away. That's a large part of why it brings a happiness, because the wanting goes away. So the Buddha noticed this, and he he pointed to this as really the key. Let go of the wanting, and happiness will follow. A deeper kind of happiness, not one that comes from getting what we want and being endlessly tied to having to get what we want, but a happiness that comes from a deep letting go. So I'll come back to the a little more uh, exploration of the third noble truth in a minute, but I want to round it out with the fourth noble truth, which is the, um, the truth that there is a path, there's a, a way that we can become free of this dukkha, this suffering, this stress, this dissatisfaction. This is the Noble Eightfold Path. 
which um, incorporates kind of a set of trainings that uh, allow us to, first of all, cultivate a, uh, an understanding of what we need to understand. And the basic understanding the Buddha points to is understand the Four Noble Truths. Begin to orient your attention towards noticing this craving and this suffering. And this will be the path to its freedom, its release. So there's the understanding that needs to begin. And from that understanding, we begin to, to engage in a, um, in a more, in a, in, a, in a way that's in line with this notion of freedom from suffering, in that we start to engage in the world in non-harming with non-harming actions because we see that actions that create harm create suffering in the world and our orientation is away from suffering. And so we begin to to behave more ethically. And then through that we start to see that some of the urges to um, act in unskillful ways are, are rooted in our minds and that those can be understood by training the mind. And so the, the last part of the Eightfold Path is a, is a training of the mind to cultivate mindfulness and effort and concentration, which will allow us then to more clearly see how these urges come to be, how these urges to engage unskillfully come to be. And in beginning to see those urges in their very arising or in their cessation, as in that example I just described, seeing, seeing this clearly, in that example, what happened to me after I saw that so clearly, after I saw that the wanting disappeared, well, for a little while after that moment, I kind of got into you know, watching people not, not watching them, but watching the wanting and watching it disappear. Because it was so cool to watch that wanting disappear. It felt so good to have that wanting disappear. And then at some point I realized, you know, after another few days or so of, of watching and, you know, seeing, oh, there's the wanting. Oh, there's what the wanting feels like. And then the person disappears and then the wanting disappears. It's like, oh, wow, that's so cool. Um, at some point I realized I was actually holding on to the wanting in order to see it disappear. <laughs> and in that recognition, the wanting vanished instantly. Well, as soon as I realized that there was a little bit of craving, there was the assumption that the wanting would stay there until the person disappeared. And I discovered that wasn't the case. And actually, when I realized how there was kind of that holding on to the wanting in order to see it disappear, it vanished immediately. And then, after that point, that particular flavor of wanting didn't come up on the retreat anymore. It was, you know, as if that pattern had been seen through, that particular pattern. And so, that's the kind of, you know, small way in which we can experience this third noble truth, this ending of suffering. And so the the practices of mindfulness, of effort, of concentration, allow us to see these things, allow us to witness how our suffering is put together and how it can fall apart. So with these four noble truths, there are actions associated with each of them. There's the, uh, the first noble truth that the Buddha said, understand suffering. Understanding in the, this context means understanding um, from the perspective of mindfulness, not mentally understanding. So understanding the, uh, the felt sense of that suffering. The second noble truth is meant to be let go of. So that craving, that wanting, is meant to be released, abandoned. We let go of that wanting. That letting go of that wanting allows us to 
realize, that's the action associated with the third noble truth, realize the ending of that suffering. The ending of craving, the ending of that wanting is the ending of the suffering. And then the fourth noble truth, the path, is meant to be cultivated. So we, we engage with practices. So these four noble truths aren't abstract philosophical statements meant to just be thought about. They're actually meant to be engaged with. So we engage with them. We cultivate the path. So this third noble truth of realizing the ending of suffering. The the basic understanding is it is... Let's see if I can find the... Here's the basic definition of the third noble truth. This is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. It is the remainderless fading away and cessation of craving, the giving up and relinquishing from it, freedom from it, non-reliance on it. So the letting go of it, the non-reliance on it, I like that, that term, non-reliance. If we think about how we typically engage, I think we do rely on craving. You know, that typical way that we um, explore happiness or think that happiness will come by having what I want. It's by relying on craving that we get what we want. So this is this is pointing to kind of a whole shift. I mean, it is, there is a kind of a notion in a sense that, well, if I don't want things, how would anything ever happen? So in that way, we rely on craving. The, 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 the kind of trust that I have, am beginning to come to is, is the, the sense that in the meeting of experience, without that Agenda, you know, craving often comes with an agenda that things have to be a certain way. You know, that we have this image in our mind of what it needs to be like, and that we're shooting for that image. We're trying to create that image in our experience. And the, um, that's what we rely on to be happy. That, you know, if I can fulfill that image, then I'll be happy. The movement of this letting go of the craving takes us into a space where we are um, not so much reacting and trying to control and create something, but more simply meeting and responding skillfully to what is. So we rely instead of on craving, we rely on kind of the truth of things unfolding moment to moment. And the, the, we rely also on this open heart and the, um, the ethical conduct. We rely on that the heart that is not resistant and reactive, being more naturally responsive and in a skillful way. This is kind of the understanding that as we travel this path, one who frees themselves from this craving is naturally living an ethical life, naturally aware and mindful naturally responsive rather than reacting and trying to construct something. So this non-reliance on craving. So it's kind of a, it's more than we realize, I think we rely on this craving um, to direct our lives. So one of the main definitions of this freedom from suffering. So this first one is this cessation of craving. That's one of the definitions of this third noble truth. 
and the, the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, the term given to it, enlightenment, nibbana, uh, nirvana, sometimes in the Sanskrit, nirvana. The main definition that the Buddha gives of it is the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. And so this is, you know, this is essentially kind of, in a way, relating that craving to these fundamental patterns of mind, greed, aversion, and delusion. And actually, um, Ines Friedman in the next few weeks is going to explore greed, aversion, and delusion in detail. So I won't go into those too much at the, in this moment, except to just um, you know, kind of connect them to this craving. So I'm going to read a few words from the Buddha. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion. This indeed is called Nibbana. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared, man aims at his own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and he experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, Man aims at neither his own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both. And he experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. So for me, this is a very compelling definition that he directly ties this being ensnared with these forces in our mind of wanting things to be other than they are, of having to hold on to things that, to try to keep them, of wanting to get rid of things we don't like, of being confused about where our happiness actually lies. This notion that having what I want will make me happy is kind of one of the fundamental forms of delusion that we live under. It's one of them. So, you know, that this, this be- belief itself kind of lies underlies a lot of our actions. It's understood that delusion actually underlies greed and aversion. And so this, this delusion, this belief, having things will make me happy, creates actions that bring in the greed and the aversion. And so this, uh, we're ensnared. There's, a, there's this being ensnared by these beliefs that keep us tied to this cycle. And so the, the understanding is that if we can give up this greed, this aversion, this delusion, we will experience no mental pain or grief. That's a, that's a pretty amazing statement. I mean, even just contemplating what it might be like to experience no mental pain or grief. To me, there's a, a kind of a I mean, it's very hopeful in a way. It feels very hopeful. And the fact that he says, this is immediate, visible in this life. You know, this is not something that, uh, you know, has to go way off into the future. It is possible to recognize this here and now. Now, not so easy to recognize it here and now the Buddha talked about kind of this reaching this place of the letting go of all greed, aversion, and delusion. Not something that happens like that, but it's rather a gradual path. The path described, the Eightfold Path, uh, is a gradual path, and he often talked about it in this way. You know, he, he gave analogies indicating kind of the slow wearing away of our... Um, greed, aversion, and delusion. He talked about um, he talked about um, repeating over and over again these trainings that even after we begin to see a little bit 
even after we begin to notice, like that little description I gave about the seeing of how the wanting, when it was let go of, was like being released from a vice grip. Now that seeing in that moment didn't cure me of all wanting. You know, it it seemed to take care of a, a wanting associated with that particular situation, in a way, at that time in my life. So the, the, the Buddha indicated that we need to keep practicing. You know, that basically we may have some insights, some recognitions. So seeing things like this, you know, you bring your mindfulness to your experience, you begin to recognize how this mindfulness creates a little space around your experience. You see that there's less suffering in the experience when there's a little bit of spaciousness around it through the mindfulness. That we can actually watch our uh, anger, our frustration in our minds and not act on it and find a little bit of peacefulness even as that anger, that frustration is going on in our minds. And so we begin to see small shifts in our practice through bringing this mindfulness to our experience. It might happen by um, that sense of space, you know, just seeing a little bit of perspective. It might happen by actually seeing the end of something, like that ending of that wanting that I described. You can see how it lets go. Or you might see, too, how you've changed over time. You might see that, you know, I used to be so reactive when things like that happened and it doesn't bother me so much anymore. So that we, we begin to see small ways in which we are at least more free of suffering than we used to be. And so this is kind of a pointer for us these these small moments are um, kind of giving us a, the direction. They're showing us that yes, you know this this training is helping me to be less stuck by my my suffering, less stuck by my greed, by my aversion, by my delusion. So we begin to see that we're we're not quite so in, entangled. There's a little less stickiness to some of those patterns. And we keep, we just keep working. And the Buddha described this as a gradual path. Slowly over time, these, the stickiness of our craving lets go. So it's not, it's, I, mean, I think we, we come into practice sometimes and hear about enlightenment and have this belief, you know, it's some mind-blowing thing that, you know, I'll get this glaring, brilliant white light and suddenly after that moment everything will be better. In my experience it hasn't worked like that. I mean, it's been really slow, gradual. There have been a few moments when I've seen something like that wanting disappearing really clearly or seeing into a structure of a pattern of mind so clearly, seeing self-hatred so clearly that I recognize, oh my, this is just created by my mind. This whole pattern of self-hatred is simply a creation of the mind. And that really radically shifting my relationship to self-hatred. So there have been a few moments like that in my life, in my practice life. But the vast majority of it has been very slow, gradual, letting go. And it's much more like seeing, I've been practicing now for what, about 15 years, I think. No, 14, something like that. And a lot of this recognition of freedom from suffering comes from seeing how the mind no longer responds and reacts in the ways that it used to. So this kind of recognizing the way the mind has changed, you know, seeing that this suffering isn't coming up for me as much. That actually is helpful to recognize. It's helpful to, to highlight that for yourself when you see, 
oh yeah, here I am standing in line at a grocery store and this person in front of me is really taking a long time. They can't remember their PIN number and they're having to re-enter it. And then the, uh, the cashier needs to help them and all of this stuff and I'm just sitting there and it's fine. You know, not, impatience is not coming up. It's like, wow, this is different. You know, I used to be really impatient about this kind of situation. Not to say that I never get impatient, I'll tell you. So, But there's been a huge shift. And seeing that shift, actually acknowledging that shift, is supportive for us. It's, it's connecting with this truth, this third noble truth of how the cessation of suffering, this, this letting go of the wanting, supports our freedom from suffering. So these, um, these moments... These small moments. Actually, there's one teacher, I'll, I'll put this out there too, because it's, uh, it's an interesting view um, that, you know, there's that, so there's greed, aversion, and delusion happening in our minds all the time, you know, pretty much whenever we're acting, there's some kind of greed, aversion, or delusion going on if we, if we take the time to look. But one teacher, one Thai teacher, <coughs> Um, proposed that we actually experience, not consciously, but that happening in our experience throughout our day are little tiny moments when greed, aversion, and delusion are absent. He says, this is uh, Buddha Dasa, he's a Thai uh, teacher from the last century. Anyone can see if states of greed, aversion, and delusion were with us all day and night, every second without ceasing, living things must either die or become insane. Let us consider that we survive because there are periods that the fires of greed, aversion, and delusion are not burning. And Joseph Goldstein suggests that while these moments happen to us regularly, they are not noticed. We don't become aware of the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion because it's such a subtle experience. We're much more attuned to noticing when we want things, when we don't want things. And so we just miss it, basically. We miss these moments when greed, aversion, and delusion are absent. So... Let me think if there's anything more I want to say. or Let me just see if there's any questions at this point. Yeah, aren't there? Pass the mic back. No, try the other one. <laughs> and give it to Eileen. Maybe she can replace the battery. So I'm not sure if this is two questions or two parts. Uh, it'll, as I, um, so wanting. So some some wanting. My experience with it is that some wanting is very spontaneous, like what you describe with somebody walks by and you want to see who it is. Is this working? Yes, I can hear you. Um, other wanting, which is more troubling to me, is the wanting that's kind of obsessive. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's so obsessive that it goes on for days and, and or weeks, and I almost never see it. I almost I, yeah, I've just become obsessed with it, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and it obscures any kind of mindfulness. Um, so the first question is um, how to make inroads into that second <laughs> into kind. the obsessive kind of yeah. wanting. And then the the other piece to this is um, you were talking about delusion before, and and that delusion underlies 
all of this. And so in those moments when I see myself craving something obsessively and I look at it and I, and I remind myself this is craving. So there is some mindfulness there. It doesn't obscure all mindfulness. Well, yes, of course. Okay. Uh-huh. It's there sometimes, but it's a very small percentage. Yes, okay. Of, <laughs> uh, you know, as I say. Um, but, but when there is that mindfulness, what I see is um, not so much the wanting as much as what you described as this construction of how I want it to be. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And at that point I realize the wanting is never going to satisfy that because that's, I don't even want that, <laughs> really. I, I, I'm not sure I'm making this very clear now. It's, it's, uh, so, so what you're saying essentially is that you recognize that you, what you're wanting is an idea... Not the thing I'm wanting, not the, ob- not the I'm, object. I'm wanting right. the concept. You're wanting the concept. That's, that's, a, that's a deep insight, actually, to see that, because that's, that's actually the structure of how the wanting really works, that we don't actually want the thing itself. We actually want our idea about the thing. And, and, and with that, almost immediately, the understanding of that goes away. It will come back again later, but it almost goes away, and I continue on with the same obsessive wanting. <laughs> so so these, <laughs> patterns, these patterns have a lot of momentum to them. And so you can kind of see how, the, how that cycle of wanting you know, has reinforced itself. You know, that, that the belief behind that wanting is, I need to be satisfied in order to go away. So it's a deluded belief inherent in the, in the wanting itself. And so that because it has only really experienced, in a way, the relief of that wanting through the, um, the satisfaction of that wanting, that it, it kind of keeps it going. And so it's got a strong momentum. It's got a lot of habit behind it. And so partly we just have to you know, keep doing what you're doing. You, know, you are making some inroads into it. It's the gradual wearing away of the pattern, slowly over time. Um, you know, the, the, when you have mindfulness, when there is mindfulness, you, know, you can bring in that. I mean, if you bring in that wisdom, do you notice in that moment that the wanting goes away even for a moment? Or yes, it does. It okay, it goes away. And then do you see when it comes back? So another exploration. So seeing it go away, you know, that's that's one of the powerful recognitions that we actually see. And you see the relief of that wanting going away. I assume, yes. <laughs> um, so you, you you get a sense of that. But then what what the next piece is is to begin to watch how that wanting comes back together. So what is it that happens? Now, do you see, I mean, you might notice, for instance, that 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 fantasy comes back in your mind and that the wanting is a response to that fantasy. Or you might uh, feel a feeling in your body. I mean, there can almost be habits, these habits of wanting, these habits of... uh, that the habits that we've cultivated for our whole lives... You know, they condition our bodies also to feel a certain way. So it's almost as if sometimes what happens is that our bodies will go back into their habitual place. You know, bodies have a memory, you know. (laughs) And so, um, you know, if you've spent a lot of time in this place of that contracted wanting and there's a lot of physical contractions around that, which I expect there are if you actually look at that, there's a, there's a physical feeling of that wanting as well. If you, so that, that physical place is so familiar that the body can just go back into that physical place and then the wanting, it's kind of like, oh, there's that physical place. I must want something. 
I've actually noticed this when, it, when my mind gets pretty quiet, I can see this. It's, it does take a little bit more settledness sometimes to see that, that the bodily experience can come up and that the emotion or the response isn't necessarily there. And yet, because the bodily thing is there, it's like it's this magnetic pull towards that mind state because there's such a link between the mind and the body. And so if you can get interested in what is it that that wanting is coming into being around? Because it's coming into being in this moment. There's something that's happening in this moment that is that creation. And in my own experience, that has really been a lot of the place where some of the freeing has happened when I can actually see how, how the wanting... Well, there's been the, the freeing that happens just over the slow, gradual rotting away of, you know, wearing away of um, looking at a pattern, not reacting to it, just looking at it every time it comes up. I've had whole patterns disappear by just looking at them over and over and over and over again and kind of just seeing a slow, gradual wearing away and actually never even seeing them disappear. You know, it's like one day I realized, wow, I haven't felt that for a long time. Where did it go? And it's gone, you know. So, so there's that kind of wearing away that happens, that just from the meeting it, just the being willing to be mindful as you can, so you are starting to make inroads into it by that meeting. And then additionally, because you at this point can see it, see that wanting disappear, you have the opportunity perhaps to see it. What is it that is hooking that wanting? If you can see what it is that, that... There's a cause for everything. So the wanting is the cause for suffering. There's something that's causing the wanting. It may be a physical experience. It may be an image in your mind. If you can see what that, how that wanting is put together, sometimes that will have a pretty powerful impact on the mind to see that. So I'm mostly going to encourage you to keep doing what you're doing because it sounds like you are observing it and learning more about it. I mean, the fact that you've seen it's the concept is huge. You know, when you can see that it, it's, it's really kind of amazing. You know, we, we create this idea and we want that and suffer over, suffer a huge amount over something that is completely in our minds. It's quite amazing. Oh, and that's, we have to stop now. So, so... Um, do you suffer without the mind? How do you suffer without the mind? So what do you mean? When you said it's in your mind, that's, that's, that's where the suffering comes The suffering is in, in your mind, yes. Yes. So, the, the, so I'm not sure what you mean, how do you suffer without the mind? No, I just brought that up. Suffering comes from your mind. Suffering is coming from the mind, right. So because it is a mental construction, there is actually the possibility that we can be free of it. Because it is created in our minds, there's this possibility that if it weren't, if it were somehow coming from outside of us, there wouldn't be that possibility. But because it's coming from this reactivity, there's a possibility to let it go. So um, I will be away for eight weeks, and um, people will be here on Tuesday mornings. I will be you know, in 